I hope you are all refilled um, after your tea and coffee and brownies actually, excellent brownies, thank you for ever made them. We're going to get stuck into our, our Q&A. Um, as you can see, we've got a substantial amount of questions. We're going to try our best to work our way through some of them, but obviously it's not going to be possible to answer all the questions, so don't be offended. Um, if you want to, have a, if you have a burning question, go and approach Johnny sometime before, you know, over the, the dinner table, and I'm sure he would be happy to answer it or, or get any clarity. So we're going to get stuck in here. Um, Johnny, who wrote 1 Samuel? If Samuel dies part of the way through the story, was it Samuel? And why do we have two Samuel? Why is it broken into two volumes, if you like? Short answer, we don't know. Um, but uh, let me try and at the same time approach the question from method. And in, in these questions, what I'll try and do is address them. But also, you'll hear me think aloud about how to address them. So it's natural to come to a book like 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and say, okay, who wrote it? Was it Samuel who wrote it? And it doesn't say that Samuel wrote it anywhere in it. Uh, other times there are books that do tell us who the author is. Is that me or you? I don't know. We'll try and sort this out. Okay. All right. So it's fine. I'm not bothered about it. Let's go with us here handheld. Shall I take my phone down here? Away from. It's like an evil spirit. Is that better now? Okay, fine. I think it's a, fe it's a feedback from this here second microphone. Should I move? Is that better? I'll hold this. Okay, yeah. all right. So in terms of method, it's a natural question. It occurs to us. It's an important question. So then all you've got available to you is to see what's the content of the two books that bear Samuel's name. And if you turn with me to the end of 2 Samuel, he is long dead by then. Um, he's disappeared off the scene. We're told when he dies, but he's long dead by the end of 2 Samuel, even though David is still alive. Are you happy? Is that sorting of Even though David is still alive. And so 2 Samuel, as a collection of two books, looks right back from the perspective of the very end of David's life, right back to the, to the time before David was anointed. Samuel being the kingmaker sent by God to anoint first Saul and then David. And so it's impossible to say that Samuel wrote all of it. Similar issues arise, don't they, when we're reading the book of Exodus. Did Moses write all of it? It's hard to think that he recorded his own death, which uh, appears um, there. So why does it bear his name? It's come to bear his name because I guess he is the major character in the first part of it. Why is it divided into two? Uh, other experts need to, t to tell you of this. I think it's likely that there is a hinge at the point at which Saul dies. There's a very different tone to the story after Saul's death, which comes at the hinge between 1 Samuel and 2. We do seem to move on a gear at that point. It could be something structural, like there's room on a scroll for the first part and then another scroll. I don't know more than I, I, I've told you thus far. Okay. Good. Um, in Hannah's song, why does Hannah mention a king uh, when there was as yet no king? I think it's at the end of yes. the song. Yes. Uh, let's go to that 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. Very clear reference to the king. He will give strength to his king and anoint the horn of his anointed, uh, exalt the horn of his anointed. Take it the answer must be that at that point, Hannah is prophesying, looking forward to what God is going to do and will do quite shortly. So God is giving Hannah uh, confidence that he will in the end give his people a king. 
Okay. Um, there was a, quite a few questions regarding um, the references in the text to God sending a, an evil or a troubling spirit to Saul. So what, what are we to do with the likes of that? First choose, Samuel. Choose one of them. Which verse? Uh, 16 verse 14. Let's turn to it together. 16 verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And there's a cluster of questions there, isn't there, uh, in both halves of the verse. What does it mean first off to say the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul? Um, we, we, we tend to come from our side of Pentecost to the Old Testament without remembering that in the Old Testament the gift of the spirit in the heart of the individual believer is, it seems, quite different from our side of Pentecost. That actually Pentecost does mark a substantial difference in the intimacy with which individual believers may know God. And so the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon uh, a king. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon a... Shall I give up on this and just speak without it? Is that the easiest thing? I'll, I'll turn this off. Still, that all right? So the Spirit of the Lord comes upon a, uh, a king. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon a priest or comes upon a prophet. But there's a sense in which the Spirit of the Lord comes upon an individual to do a job. So if you look in the life of Samson, who's a very a godless character in all sorts of ways, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, then he wins a battle. He does a job. And it's almost as if the Spirit of the Lord puts him down and then comes at him again to do another job, picking up, like picking up a shovel and putting it down again. The permanent presence of the Spirit of God in all the individual members of the people of God is a function of our side of Pentecost. So when it says the Spirit of the Lord has departed from Saul, it is not saying he was previously born again and in some way he became unborn again because the Spirit of God departed from him. The relationship between the spirit and the individual heart in the Old Testament does seem to be a little different from our side of Pentecost. That's the first thing. The second thing there, it says, an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. I'm thinking, whoa, hang on a minute, that doesn't sound so good. And, and it, it, without wanting to sort of um, split hairs, there are questions about each of the ways that that phrase is put. So what is this evil spirit? What does it mean that this evil spirit comes from the Lord? And what does it mean that this evil spirit then tormented Saul? And we're left wondering, is, is this a sort of God um, sending a kind of, um, some kind of demon to attack Saul and uh, to, to, to sort of disturb Saul in some ways? And I think we just need to go step by step with the evidence that we have available to us and look around for other parts in the scripture that will help us to interpret what may or may not be going on here. And acknowledging that sometimes we cannot actually get to the bottom of it and say, okay, I've got that sorted, I understand that. So here, an evil spirit from the Lord. Hmm. Tricky that, isn't it? So as you start the book of Job and you encounter Job, and you meet Job, and all's going well from Job, and then you're taken from Job's sort of farm, where things first off going well, and then start to go really badly. You're taken up, aren't you, into where God is, and we're told that Satan was where God is, and that Satan was given permission to trouble Job, and bring all these disasters into Job's life. Do you remember that? 
you think, hang on a minute, that's, that's tricky, isn't it? Now, the way we conceive of the supernatural, invisible world can't easily handle the fact that Satan can be in the presence of God, having a conversation with God and be allowed to go with God's permission and trouble one of God's own, which Job clearly is. So it seems to me that that's a helpful and relevant place to go to think about this. That's not to say that um, Satan is in God's employment and that God stands directly behind everything Satan stands for. But God does allow Satan massive amounts of freedom in his world in ways that we find very difficult to handle at times. It seems that wickedness is given a great deal of, of freedom to attack the people of God in the world. So what is this evil spirit? Short answer, we don't know. We are not told. Uh, is God the one who is p behind giving permission for this evil spirit to damage and disturb and torment Saul? Yes, well, quite clearly. What does torment mean? Does it mean just that Saul started to experience a fresh bout of depression that seemed to have a kind of supernatural ingredient in it? Possibly. Again, we don't know. And so uh, that's as far as I, I want to go on that, you see, to say that it is not beyond the realm of Scripture that God gives permission to Satan or one of his emissaries, as it were, to do stuff to his own people, but at the same time to say, I can't say because I wasn't there and the, the, uh, the story doesn't say to us exactly what the impact was upon Saul. Is that helpful? Is that enough? Anyone want to come back on that? I know lots of people have got this question. I don't want to be too tight and nor too, too, too open. Do you see that? Okay. Great. Um, you were critical in your framework of kind of the straight road from the story to uh, us today and our application of scripture. How do we avoid, avoid this but yet allow God's spirit to speak into our lives? For the example that was given by the questioner is how, how do we know to associate Goliath with death and not slavery? Or is there many different valid interpretations of scripture that are all linked together? And it's kind of a broad hermeneutic question. Yeah, sure. Should we take Goliath as an example? Because he's quite tricky, isn't he? Um, you know, the Goliaths in your life, uh, the Goliath that you have in your diary next week, the Goliath in your family, the Goliath, Goliath experience facing your church. How do you avoid that sort of stuff? And, and so, so part of the way to avoid it seems to me is at least to be aware that there's an issue. Uh, and that's a start, isn't it? To say it's not safe to say Goliath means all these things at the same time, that it's safe for us to assume that you can have 25 different visions of what Goliath may or may not prove to be. The, the starting point must be the intention of the original author as I go back from the story, just let's see who Goliath is. He's not at that point a metaphorical figure, is he? He is an individual with flesh and blood and armor and a spear and a head that can be cut off. So he is a historical figure. He's not a, a, like the giant who climbs um, down the beanstalk after Jack has been to visit. We're not in that territory. So then if you say, okay, why would you put a story of an individual encounter on the stage for all God's people subsequently to, to remember and to gaze at and learn from. Well, it could be they're going to meet a series of other great big giants in the future. I haven't said this to you before, but they've already met giants, haven't they? Where else did they meet giants? Do you remember? Uh, on the edge of the land, um, they said when they went into the land, the spies went into the land. Do you remember that uh, Caleb came back and all the other spies had said that actually the, the people, they seemed like giants and we were like grasshoppers. 
uh, in our own eyes. Do you remember that? And that was a mark of disloyalty and foolishness and faithfulness, faithlessness among God's people. And it seems like God deliberately, therefore, again, puts a giant on the stage for the future. Now, there are all kinds of giants between um, Goliath and Bethlehem when the Lord Jesus is born. The Old Testament has its share of giants. I mentioned some of them last night. The book of Daniel, for example, is full of giants, political giants with extraordinary power and military muscle to back it up. And God's people feel little, and they are insignificant. And so at one level, Goliath must be, it seems to me, a representative of all the subsequent giants who come onto the stage of human history, who have flesh and blood and tyrannize God's people, and the encouragement that God can bring them to nothing in a day. But because there's something else going on with this giant who comes from Gath, who comes in the name of the gods of Gath, we've already had an encounter with Dagon. He is more than just a physical individual. Do do you see that? He he carries some symbolic weight, would be my suggestion. Just like at the start of Mark's Gospel, the leper has leprosy, for sure. If you are willing, you can make me clean. But the fact that he has physical leprosy works over time as a picture of the sin that uh, the Lord Jesus has come to make us clean from. So I think there are plenty of places in Scripture where an individual historical figure with a specific set of physical features becomes a symbol for something bigger than just the physical. And then you ask the question, what is the enemy that God's people face throughout Scripture, up as far as Bethlehem, from Bethlehem to Easter, since Easter, and there are then two clear candidates, aren't there, which would be death or Satan or some kind of combination of death and Satan. Personally, I'm reluctant to say Goliath equals Satan. I don't think there's any biblical way to do that. But in that Goliath is the great Old Testament enemy, it seems to me legitimate and, and appropriate to say, well, is he perhaps doing, doing um, working overtime as a, as a, as a portrait of the permanent enemy that God's people always face in every generation, in every setting. Now, one of the great things about reading the Bible and having this sort of session, having your Bibles open, is you're free to question that. Do you see that? And so when someone comes along to say to to you, Goliath represents a niche for your small business, I think you are then able to say, no, I don't think so. And so, in a sense, there's a preacher and people together are saying, is this a plausible is this a credible interpretation of who Goliath is? Maybe he could stand for other characters, but I doubt that he could stand for many other issues. You may experience depression as a Goliath in your life, but I very much doubt that's an appropriate way to read that chapter. Do you see that? The Psalms are full of other ways of beginning to address what depression might be like. And then this is a... A question from a fan. It says, uh, we loved you in the Dukes of Hazard. Uh, how are Bo and Luke? <laughs> they are grey and balding and watching their weight like me. They are. <laughs> that was sort of a, a lighthearted interlude as we move from, from Samuel on to uh, questions not directly related to Samuel as such. Um, we read in the reading today in the book of Hebrews and another passage that kind of mirrors that is Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. Uh, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which 
he suffered, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Um, and again, the language of Christ being taught uh, and learning through his sufferings. How do we understand that? Um, the incarnate Son of God, the perfect God-man, who, who knows all things, surely. How can he learn? How can he be taught something? Great. Um, let's have a look at that. Um, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. There's just one other question about the, uh, the next one there. If Jesus wasn't capable of sin. I'm really sorry if I gave that impression. I don't think Jesus was incapable of sin in the sense that if he was being tempted, the temptation had to be for real. He resisted the temptation to sin. So he was subject to every temptation just as we are and yet was without sin. So that's the point to be clear about that. But this is difficult, isn't it? Hebrews chapter 5 and verse uh, 7. Let's just read that. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because, his reverent, because of his reverent submission. First off, the, the, if you like, the Christian life for the Lord Jesus, the life of faith for the Lord Jesus, was not without tears. Do you see that? Cries, prayers, petitions. It wasn't, it wasn't sort of Jesus floating through his ministry on a little sort of cloud, um, immune and in, uh, sort of untouched by the struggles that believers have. He, he had to cry out to his father, and he was heard because of his reverent submission, we're told. So I guess you, well, you see in Gethsemane the tears of the Lord Jesus Christ Yet not my will, but your will be done. It's not the first time he's prayed that kind of prayer, if I can put it like that. I want to put it very carefully. That actually you see there what has been true of him earlier. Gethsemane is not, in a sense, a sudden catastrophic change of climate for the Lord Jesus. It has not been easy for him. As Hebrews tells us, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, from months after his birth, from then onwards, this was true of him. So the next verse, verse eight, uh, verse, uh, yeah, verse eight. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once being made perfect, he became a source of salvation. For us, the pathway to learning obedience is marked by disobedience, isn't it? For us, um, parents say, do not step on the grass. We step on the grass, the consequences follow, and we learn obedience by serial disobedience. But if we were learning obedience through the pathway that only included obedience, we would still be learning. Do you, do you see what I'm saying by that? We would not be becoming obedient, we would be learning to be obedient. We would not be becoming more obedient because we were already fully obedient, but through being obedient, you are learning what obedience involves, what trust involves. And I think there's a sense in which the Lord Jesus learns that. If I can put it like that. He's not immune from learning that. All right? I hope that's helpful. Great. Um, taking a step back to the Old Testament, to Samuel, and again, I think this question relates a lot to a lot of the stuff that we read in the Psalms. And um, it says, can you speak to the idea in Hannah's songs that the wicked shall be silenced and that God's adversaries will be broken into pieces? Um, 
and again we see that language employed a lot in the psalms how do we uh, understand that t today and the here and now because um, i suppose behind the question is the reality that we're not going to go out and go to battle and uh, destroy everybody um so this, maybe that's answer asked very badly but by myself <laughs> it's a good question how do we know that god's enemies are going to be silenced is that the question essentially Well, the difficulty is that they're not, not yet, isn't it? The difficulty is that God's enemies seem to be very far from silent and very far from being reduced to silence. You know that psalm, which is the reference to the psalm, be still and know that I am God. You know that? What's that psalm? Does that come in? Just find that for me, somebody. Just shout out and say what psalm it is. 47, 46, which is it? 46 and 7. 46 verse 10, thank you. 46 verse 10, that's right. Be still and know that I am God. You, the point of that psalm is we sing that, don't we, as a rather sort of uh, gentle chorus. Dee, 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 dee. Well, it's not that at all. If you look at 46 verse 10, do you see what it says there? That in verse 9, he makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God, is the force of the verse. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And the force of that is that God says to these soldiers who are fighting, shut up and stop. And he insists that they shut up and stop. And he makes, well, he hasn't made war cease, has he, entirely yet? But the vision in the psalm is the same as the vision in Hannah, that the day will come when there will be no more, we can go to Revelation, can't we? There'll be no more tears, there'll be no more grief, there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more reasons for tears or grief or pain. And at that point, the voices that there are heard are the heavenly city singing, but the, the enemies of God have been reduced to silence. But it doesn't happen until, until then. And so Hannah, I think, is looking, if you like, in the short term towards a silencing of those who will oppose the king that God will appoint. They're reduced to silence. But ultimately, the silence will only come uh, when the, the new creation begins, as the Lord Jesus Christ comes or as the heavenly city comes down. And that's when silence among God's enemies appears. Is that an answer to the question? Just looking into the future and the ultimate realities of what there are is certain to happen. Every time God does silence his enemies here on earth, that's a kind of a preview of the silencing that will follow. Take a given example. When God um, silenced the clamor in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, it is very clear that every time afterwards, as the Old Testament looks back to that, and as the Lord Jesus looks back to that, it is a preview of the ultimate silencing of God's enemies that will eventually come. And in relation to the commandment, you shall not kill, why does God then order killing and warfare so often in the book of 1 Samuel? Uh, that's a perfectly fair question. It's part of a bigger question that we face uh, all the time, isn't it? Let's deal with the commandments first. You shall not kill, says God. And um, the commandments, we just need to remember where they come and who they're for and what they're about. The commandments are instructions, aren't they, to God's people on how to remain in a relationship with him. He's already rescued them out of Egypt, 
and he says to them as, as, as they meet with him on the mountain, here is the kind of shape of what it looks like to go forwards in a relationship with me. And we sometimes come to the commandments as if um, they, they are, are sort of things that definitely, okay, I'm okay on that one, I'm, I'm okay on this one. I'm okay on, but, but the point of the commandments is surely to reveal to us what we don't do and who we are not, rather than to show us who we are. So, so the point of the individual command as Jesus then develops that command where he says, you shall not kill. You've heard it was said, you shall not kill. But I say to you, anybody who is angry with his brother without cause is guilty of, of, of breaking this command. We tend to assume that these commandments have a small scope. And Jesus says, mm, it reaches right into the heart. And our attitudes to, the, to each other are exposed by these commands. So this commandment serves that function of revealing sin all through its history. Uh, sin in the individual. What then do we make of the fact that, that God, uh, as time goes by, not just as he develops his people into a state, but subsequently in the New Testament, when he is talking about the governing authorities, he talks about the governing authority as being his minister who carries the sword. And it seems that God is, is, is glad to create human institutions where wickedness and injustice is to be dealt with, uh, if necessary, at the point of a sword. Uh, obviously, there are others who take different views on this, but my own position is that the commandments are designed to teach individuals about sin, uh, who we are, as we fall short of what full obedience and loyal faithfulness to God looks like, and that it is permissible for the state, in the New Testament and in the Old, to carry the sword. The question then, why does God act so much killing is in the Old Testament is difficult for us, isn't it? Why is there so much blood? And I think that is part of the underlying issue that 1 and 2 Samuel are dealing with. Even with a, God, a man after God's, God's own heart, there is so much blood. And one of the things that Hannah's song does for us is reassure us that yes, there is blood. And the king, in the end, can't be fully trusted. David is bloodthirsty and abuses his power subsequently. But he is, in the end, God's chosen. This is the least worst option going forward. And God, in his grace, is going to use even sinners like King David to carry his purposes forward. But we can still wish it could be done with much less blood. But there is the blood there. And in the Old Testament, God, it seems, sometimes uses his own people to achieve his judgment here on earth uh, in, in wiping out parts of the map in ways that are very uncomfortable to us. Uh, in ways that he doesn't do in New Testament times, where our enemies are no longer flesh and blood, our enemies are the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. They may work through individual people, but our enemies are not those people. Our enemies are the spiritual forces in Ephesians 6 that stand behind those individuals. That's a big sort of framework answer, but I hope it's helpful. That's good. Um, when you think about the future and incre increasing chaos in the world today, what do you pray for? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That way, that's how Jesus taught his people to pray. And so that's how we should pray. Um, and one, is 1 Samuel uh, 18, or 1 Samuel 8, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 8, a warning against big government? Hmm. Is 1 Samuel 8, that's the chapter where they choose the king, a warning against big government. I think it's actually a warning against choosing a king. Okay. 
that, that opens up a whole lot of other questions, doesn't it? God's people choosing a king, then, there. <laughs> um, you were saying about, you referenced William Carey, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Thank you for examples such as Hannah, Jonathan, David, and Jesus. Could you give me any more advice or examples on how to do this today in our lives? It's a very good question. I'm glad it's been asked. And it's the great danger of quoting anything like expect uh, great things from God, attempt great things for God. Um, my, my, my kind of answer to, to it is, is to, to rejoice that it was said, to rejoice that it was helpful to William Carey and the rest of them, and then to read a book by Michael Horton, which is called Ordinary. And actually, that's very helpful as a perspective on our lives today, that we're called to be ordinary children of God who love God, who love uh, our neighbor, who love God's word and love God's son and, and read God's word and seek to serve him in the ordinary places where he has called us. And if he then intends to do something extraordinary and spectacular and, and great through us, well, hooray. Uh, and that's his position. It's his kind of initiative, not ours very often. Having said that, what's a great thing for God? Well, it's a great thing to go, for God to go on being a Christian, isn't it? And that's the first thing to go on to be, want to be, is to be a faithful, loyal disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ for as long as I have breath. That'd be a great thing given my own waywardness and weakness and capacity to muck up and stray off, be a great thing just to keep on going. Uh, and so let's have a clear-sighted vision of what a great thing is. It would be great to be a godly husband. It would be great to be a godly father. It would be great to be a godly son to my mother, brother to my sisters. Uh, and so let's see what great is. Um, we've... I've kind of made a mess of dropping all the questions on the floor, so we have got time for another few questions. Apologies if yours wasn't asked here, but I just want to give the opportunity if there's anyone on the floor who has a question. Andrew? I think it's a perfectly good question. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think the, the question you were asking is when is a charge from God? When is it God putting something into your mind that is your then responsibility to respond to? And where do you, in a sense, rely on your own human initiative to say, wouldn't it be great um, if the whole of Belfast got converted and it'd be great to attempt whatever it is that you're wanting to kind of lead off to see happening? Is that right? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, ideas, uh, a couple of different ways of responding to that. The first is, you know, an idea comes, wouldn't it be great if? Well, that, then the wisdom must be to pray uh, over a period about that idea. And I think ideas from God have a habit of growing warmer, uh, and ideas that are just kind of something we've cooked up grow colder, in my experience. So test the conviction over time in prayer. And then test the conviction with concentric circles of Christians whose reaction you are able to respect, who, who know you well enough to say, nonsense, you know, 
too much cheese, or, or who say to you, "You're a great idea, but not you know haven't got the gifts for it. Forget it." Uh, or, or who say, "No, this is we, you know this seems good to us. Let's together pray and pursue this idea and see whether this may be of God." I think that's one thing to say. The other to say is that just occasionally over the years, um, it, just to speak sort of personally, people ring up and say, "Would you apply for this sort of job?" And I, I say to myself, "Well." No, um, I, I, I won't. You, you can pray, and if I can't sleep, I'll let you know. Uh, and in a sense, that's a way of testing an initiative that comes from somewhere else to see whether or not you, you feel that you should become caught up in somebody else's initiative. And I say, don't hold your breath. And you know, when that's happened, then I go to sleep, and I don't wake up, and I don't worry about it. In the sense, I believe God has called me to be where I am, to do the things he's given me to do, and to be able to do those is the great thing for God that he has entrusted for me to do. And that looks pretty ordinary for everybody else, but that's the thing that I have to do. So we read the great ones, you know, Hudson Taylor, given the vision to evangelize the whole of China, and we think that should be like, it should be like that for us. And we're sort of slightly second-class citizens unless we have that kind of target in our sights and that kind of uh, um, vision for, for a great thing. And I don't think that's true. And that's why I quoted Michael Horton, his book, Ordinary. Everybody is, almost everybody is called to be ordinary. If God makes you extraordinary, that's up to him. And then the other thing to say, therefore, I think is, is that occasionally we allow ourselves to be uh, un unworthily ordinary, if I can put it like that. Um, in being ordinary, it seems to me, therefore, we carry out our responsibilities to the very best of our ability, whatever they may be. So we do the next thing. And we do it right, and then we do what's the next thing to do, and do that right too. And that's a great thing, to seek to be the best we can be in whatever the particular responsibilities God has given us to do, without making the way God worked in one person's life 150 years ago the pattern of how God should work in all of our lives today. I hope that's helpful. Uh, anyone else? Ben? Um, just to, just for letting, I was I was on the team at St Helens in 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 London, St Helens Bishopsgate. In those days, it wasn't as, as large as it is now, but a thousand people a week were coming through the doors, and I led the team uh, again in those days. The staff was nothing like what it is now, but um, thirteen, I think, on the staff when I was there. And I wanted to go somewhere where I wasn't building another man's foundation, where they had not really heard the gospel, uh, as far as I could tell. Um, and, and in, in, in God's grace, the church I now serve in East Yorkshire was that kind of church. Uh, my predecessor had, had worked hard, uh, been there 11 years. He was certainly a converted man, but it had been very difficult for him. And before that, there'd been somebody there for 30 years, whereas, as far as I can tell, there was no gospel during that time at all. So I inherited a congregation of um, perhaps a dozen at 8 o'clock, uh, BCP, sort of common prayer and nothing else. And then in the morning, an all-age service of about 20, and then a service dominated by a choir. There were more in the choir, about 12 in the choir, than there were in the congregation. And then perhaps in the evening, again, Book of Common Prayer in the evening, and uh, there were probably a dozen in the choir and three in the congregation in the evening. 
We didn't go to a service on a Sunday before going there with our young family. We had four children. And as far as we could tell when we arrived, there was nobody else under 50 who was converted with whom we could be friends. And I was 39, my wife also the same. No children for our family to get to know, particularly just one or two, but no Christian friends for them. So it, it involved trusting God to take us on an adventure of faith, as it were. And we prayed that he would bring to us a new couple or family or individual each month into the life of the church family before they got converted, just find a way at home and then be converted. And in his grace, he, I think he's done that for us each month since we've been there in May, to May 1998. And they die, they move on. Um, but, but things are a bit different now. What's been hard? Uh, my wife was a, served as a missionary in Africa in uh, Kasizi Hospital, southwest Uganda, before we were married. She would say to you, it's more lonely in East Yorkshire than, East Af- than, than in East Africa uh, in, in serving as a, as a minister's wife uh, herself, a minister of the gospel. There was no one to lead Sunday groups for our children. They said, oh, where's the Sunday? Well, there wasn't one. And so I, I encouraged her to teach our children. And then if anybody else learned anything, that was a bonus. And uh, that was hard for her. So every Saturday night, she would be kind of filled with anxiety about the difficulty of teaching the children the following day. Uh, There were obstacles to the gospel. Um, Unfortunately, the choir became an obstacle to the gospel. Um, And uh, so someone said to me after a couple of years, he said, if I was going to be honest about this church, I would say it's an organ console with a a church attached to it. Well, we had to move the center of power from the organ console to the gospel, to the word of God. And as I preached the gospel, um, for the first two years, I always preached from one of the gospels. So I was always talking about Jesus. There's a, a verse in John's gospel which talks about uh, it being the, like the light coming on, that the light shines. And some come out of the darkness into the light, and some, when the light shines, go into the darkness. Well, I could see that happening in front of me. There would be people who'd sort of creep into the door and gradually move towards the front week by week. And there are others who are in the church who gradually move towards the back and then out the door week by week as the gospel sifted the people who are in front of me. Um, and in God's grace, we've seen gentle growth through, throughout that time. What keeps you going? The Lord Jesus, um, the Spirit of God, um, and friends. Uh, gradually friends within the church, but initially friends from outside the church. Uh, things like this. Uh, I, I go each year to a group of ministers where we meet. I just go wherever's on happens to be speaking, and that keeps me going, keeps me accountable. Um, and in God's grace, we're still there and plugging on. Does that answer your question? Okay. Well, thank you, Johnny. You've uh, survived very well. Um, Nothing too awkward, just a odd Jukes a hazard question. Um, we're gonna. I should, I should say, I should say that Jukes, when it's properly spelled, is J U C K E S. Nothing to do with a D. There you go. For whoever wrote that question. <laughs> um, that's it, guys. We've come to the, the the end of our time together. So we have. Um, I hope hope you've enjoyed it. I always find that the Q and A a really uh, beneficial time to reflect on some of the questions that I've had and I think that's been um, helpful and I think it's been been beneficial to do that.